Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Sarus Faravar, senior writer at Forbes. And we're talking about his book, Habeas Data, Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech. Uh, Sarus, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So talk to us a little bit about uh, why this book. What led you to write this? The book, uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it came about because I was at a point in my career some years ago where I was trying to learn more about and became, you know, had more encounters with different types of surveillance technology. Just before we got on this call, um, I was talking about my experience, my professional experience working in living in Germany uh, between 2010 and 2012. I was, I was working for Deutsche Welle English, which is the, the German publicly funded international broadcaster. Uh, so I had an English language show called Spectrum on the radio. It was broadcast in, in various countries around the world. And when I arrived in Germany in the spring of 2010, uh, something really interesting was happening in Germany with, res with regard to technology, which was the fact that G Google Street View was just arriving in Germany. Um, and Google Street View, folks may remember, right, by that point in the U.S. was several years old, I want to say. I don't remember offhand when it first arrived. But, you know, I think we'd kind of mostly forgotten about it at that point. Like, I think, you know, it was just like a thing that kind of, you know, there's a little blip of, of privacy, you know, nerds who I love who, you know, complained about it at the time, but it kind of went away. And, and we just kind of accept the fact that like a private company has pictures of everyone's house forever, I guess. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, in Germany, um, Germans take a very different view to privacy and to what's public and what's private. And so I found myself arriving at a time when, when Google wanted to do this in Germany. And there was this big kind of public kerfuffle in um, kind of public debate. Uh, you had German politicians basically saying, you know, we're, we're not going to have, uh, you know, Google Street View here in Germany. And it's going to be you know, it's this whole big thing. Um, and so that sort of got me thinking about like, what is the relationship between what is private and public? How do people think about those kinds of issues? Um, you know, in Germany, I, I got the impression that people, I would say the sort of default position is that people are pretty accepting of what the German government does and maybe less accepting of what private companies do when it comes to privacy I'm talking about. Whereas I feel like mostly the default here in America is sort of the opposite. We're pretty accepting of what companies do and we're less accepting of what government does, generally speaking. Um, and so I found that sort of you know, dichotomy pretty fascinating. Um, and that led me down the path to look more closely at uses of various types of surveillance technology. Um, back then when I was a reporter at uh, Ars Technica, a, a tech site um, that I worked for after Deutsche Welle when I, came, when I moved home to California uh, in 2012. Um, and so I started just being exposed to numerous types of 
technology and trying to understand how is it that these technologies are being used? How is it that they're legal? Uh, why are they legal? How is it that, you know, court decisions made, you know, decades ago, um, you know, direct or allow um, newer technological applications uh, to be used in what I think is oftentimes kind of a novel uh, way. Yeah. Um, I think one of the ones you mentioned here, and I never really thought about this before, like normally if you give police uh, cause to stop you, they can search your person. And then all of a sudden with phones, it's like, it's, there's a huge difference in the amount of information you can get on the items that are on a person's purse, like on a person's body versus what's in their phone. Right. Um, so that, that um, I had heard that before and I, I saw that you, 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 you mentioned that and talk about that. Uh, before we get into that, maybe just some of the more uh, broader uh, kind of categorical things. What do you see are the kind of pros and cons and the kind of the different issues available between official equipment and uh, surveillance use and third party equipment and surveillance use? Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, the line I would say is getting blurrier all the time, to be frank. Yeah. Right. I mean, I yeah. think that we live in a world now where, you know, I would imagine nearly every law enforcement agency in America, big and small, um, whether you're talking about your local county sheriff, your local police department, all the way up to, you know, a big three-letter agency like the FBI or the NSA or something, right? Every level of American law enforcement is using some type of surveillance tool to do their job. And like, depending on your view of government, you can believe that, you know, they're totally well-intentioned or maybe they're totally not well-intentioned or maybe somewhere in the middle or maybe it depends on the day or who knows. Um, but, um, you know, I think that compared to private companies that are using what is often called, you know, surveillance capitalism or, or you know, the uh, people talk about, right, the surveillance state. And I think surveillance capitalism is, is a kind of a version of that, that that exists in the modern world that like, and I think when people talk about surveillance capitalism, I think generally what they mean is that like, you know, when you and I are, are goofing around on the internet and, you know, interacting with our friends, interacting with our family, you know, conducting, you know, professional interactions online, our movements, our actions, our reactions, what we, you know, click as like or, or follow, links that we follow, the way we interact with websites is monitored for profit. And that's not inherently bad necessarily, um, but it can be used to, you know, glean certain pieces of information about you as a way to serve you advertising, as a way to encourage you to take certain actions um, that maybe, you know, based on information that companies maybe otherwise would not have. Um, and many people don't find that disturbing, right? Many people are like, well, I'm just doing living my life and, you know, who cares if, you know, if uh, Google knows what my favorite sports team is or, or that I like Star Trek or whatever, uh, you know, it's no big deal. Um, and I, I totally understand that impulse. Uh, I think, you know, many people would have a different feeling um, knowing when it's a government agency uh, tracking your movements, whether it's your physical movements or your movements online or collecting information that maybe you didn't think that um, they were collecting. Um, so again, I think part of that you know, kind of two sides of the same coin in a way to me goes back to how in this country, I would say, you know, most of us, most of the time give pretty 
you know, a wide berth, give, give a lot of deference to what private companies do because right. We value, right. Google like ha provides a valuable service. They provide, you know, services and products that I'm sure you and I both use every day. Um, and we are sort of accepting of the fact that like, yeah, Google probably knows a ton about me and what I do online and what I search for and where I am and, you know, things like that. Um, but I sort of say, well, that's the price I'm paying for using a service that is good, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, and it's an example I've used on here before, but, um, uh, my day job is digital marketing. And one of the, like, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but one of the most classic, uh, cases of, uh, that might make people uncomfortable and give them some idea of the scope of the problem is the, the father who came into, uh, uh, target um angry because his uh they were sending pregnancy ads right. uh to his his daughter right. and she was 16 right and then two weeks later he came back and said i'm he, he apologized because she was in fact pregnant right and so what <laughs> uh and and i think there's an interesting thing here because a lot of times people are becoming more aware because of all the scandals with facebook and stuff about their browsing but another thing is just the uh incredible um collating tools that are now available to companies like the databases that are made from just like i mean obviously amazon when you browse on their site they gather information but like walmart when you buy stuff they track it to your credit card and they have an entry on you and they have all their stuff um and that's like that's the stuff that even as i was looking through your book that's uh sprung out to me probably because i come from a digital marketing background like i'm like i know what can, what you can find out and it's scary right yeah um but the uh like i i had not i think someone had mentioned in passing like some facial recognition stuff but i'd never thought about the license plate recognition is mm -hmm. that what like lpr yep um and so to me uh i mean there's a whole they they obviously belong together a lot of the principles are going to be the same but there there is some very distinct differences between like this very digital only experience and then the the apps like kind of um the way that technology starts to exist in the world with things like LPR, uh, you know, license plate recognition and, um, and drones, uh, especially, you know, like all of a sudden, like the digital world's invading the, the physical world, if I can put it that way. Um, do obviously, so forgive me. That was, uh, you know, I, I went on, uh, for a little bit there, but, uh, as I'm looking at this, um, what are, what is kind of the, scope uh if you don't mind talking through like um both the lpr side of things and the drone side of things what like can you give people an idea of the scope of the problem or the the power that is available to uh, follow them sure so lprs are one of those technologies that i knew nothing about 10 years ago and have become weirdly obsessed with since then. <laughs> um, it's a technology that I think most Americans don't know exists, frankly. Um, and I don't blame them because it's not like, it's not something like, I don't watch a lot of like cop TV shows, but I feel like, you know, even if you're a fan of law and order or, or one of these types of shows, like LPRs are not something that comes up a lot. And I feel like people's, popular understanding of what modern policing looks like in practice, right? Even if you just see any, again, in any small town in America, you poke your head 
just on the side of a police car, you would know, I think most people know that like most police cars, at least ones I've seen, right, have computers in them, right? Like that's right. not that's not a big deal. Um, and we know what police cars look like. We know what police officers look like. We know the tools that they carry. They carry guns, they carry uh, handcuffs, they carry walkie talkies or radios maybe. Maybe they carry uh, other types of, you know, tools that they need, physical tools that they need to do their jobs. And that's fine. Like, I think we all understand that. Um, but I was really surprised to learn that it's pretty common now for for law enforcement to have mounted on police cars. Um, where I live in Oakland, California, uh, at last check, there was a few dozen uh, police cars that have these, these roof-mounted uh, little, they look like little strips of LEDs. So like if, if you look in front of the light bar, right, imagine you're like a prototypical police car, and then like in front of the light bar, the like red and blue flashing lights that we're all familiar with, there's like a little special like array of what looks like LEDs. That's the license plate reader. And what it's doing is it's capturing at incredibly high speed, um, 60 plates per second. Um, it's basically seeing every single plate that drives in every orientation, backwards, forwards, sideways, that the camera can see. And what it's doing is it's running, so it's capturing plates, it's reading them, and this is actually pretty easy to do because right? License plates in this country have a very standard size. The font is like a very specific size and a very specific width. So it's actually for a computer to read it. It's not that hard. Um, and so what they're doing is they're comparing these plates against a list of plates that um, the police are interested in. This is often referred to as a hot list, um, right? And so you could imagine like a situation where the police are looking for a car that is believed to be associated with, you know, an Amber Alert, a child abduction, uh, is interested in somebody who's fleeing a crime scene, is interested in somebody who's stolen a car, right? It's not, it's not I think, you know, far-fetched to imagine a list of, of scenarios in which a pol police would legitimately want to go after a car. That's fine. I think most people wouldn't object to that. Um, but to me, what's interesting is that when you, when you kind of drill down and you say, well, okay, how many, how many times, right, of all the plates that it's capturing, the, the, when the machine is capturing these plates, the, the machine, neither the machine nor the officer behind the machine knows, like, is the one that I'm looking for in this haystack, right? Is there a needle in this haystack? And the answer is mostly there's not, right? Mostly, most of us, most of the time, are doing what we do. We drive around, we go get tacos, we go to ball games, we go see our friends. Like we're just living our lives and that's, and that's fine. Um, I think that, so, so in other words, the hit rate in, in my research shows that, right, so the, the number of times a plate matches one on the, on the hot list divided by the total number of plates captured, the hit rate is like well under 1%. So the overwhelming majority of the time, it's kind of useless to, to the police. Um, or it doesn't, you know, help them in any kind of investigatory capacity. Um, but so then the interesting thing is, right, okay, so the police are capturing all this data. Uh, they're capturing, they know that my plate was seen at a specific location at a specific time on a specific day. And again, depending on your perspective of whether you believe that your local law enforcement agency is well-intentioned or ill-intentioned, um, you may or may not be you know, raise an eyebrow at the fact that like your police department might know where you've been at various, at various times. Again, as just a normal law abiding average citizen, I think all of us, and this is where it gets down to kind of the surveillance and privacy question is like, all of us engage in 
what I would what I would say are private but completely legal activities all the time, right? I know here in California, right, marijuana is legal basically, and we have lots of marijuana, um, you know, clinic dispensaries all over town, all over here in in Oakland. But not everybody is super open about the fact that they may consume cannabis. If you work for the federal government, you which and it remains a federal crime, you may not want the federal government to know that that's what you're doing or that's where you've been. Um, there are lots of other businesses or, uh, you know, you may not want the government to have a record that you went to a sex shop, that you went to a cannabis dispensary, that you went to a strip club, that you went to a baseball game in the middle of the day and you ditched work. Like, you, like, you know, there's lots of things that we all do, right? That you attended a religious service, that you attended a meeting of AA, that you went to a met to a, see a medical uh, provider. Uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of, lots of activities that we all do. Um, that you might, that I would certainly not feel comfortable with there being like a permanent record of like, oh yeah, we saw your car parked in front of this, you know, cannabis dispensary on this day at this time or whatever. Um, so I think if we're going to allow our law enforcement agencies to have these tools for good to, to, to you know, investigate and prosecute crimes, I think we need to be mindful of what the capabilities of those tools are and you know, be mindful of how those tools are used and how to prevent misuse. Because I think, again, going back to what I was talking about earlier, right, we have this fear uh, that's kind of baked into our DNA as Americans. It's written into our founding documents. We have this fear that, uh, and this is playing out in the news right now with the Republicans taking control of the House. The, the House has voted to investigate the government <laughs> for, for overreaching against the American people, and they believe that they, they, they're modeling this after the church committee, uh, which was a 1970s era, you know, house committee that did uncover a lot of really bad stuff that the government was doing against the American people, um, investigating all kinds of, you know, civil rights groups, the Black Panthers, many, many others, and exposed a lot of like wrongdoing by, you know, groups like the NSA and various other government entities. And so I think that's the kind of fear that we all live with to some degree or another. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think what you did um, was you requested like you did like a public records request and was they, you were able to see all the places that they had seen your car. Yeah. Right? And yeah, that's right. Um, so with respect to with respect to license plate readers again specifically, yes, um, that is something that I did. I filed a California Public Records Act request. Um, so every state has a public records law uh, at the federal level. This is known as FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. Um, and anybody, you don't have to be a U.S. citizen, you don't have to be a lawyer, you don't have to be a journalist, you don't have, you don't need any license or permission or anything. Anybody, literally anybody can ask for uh, information about, about yourself. I mean, you can ask for information about all kinds of other things, but you certainly have a right to ask for information about yourself. So uh, anybody watching this, you can go under your own state, you know, public records law and write to, I, and I encourage people to do this. It's really eye-opening. Um, to, to write a letter to, and there's lots of, you know, formula or, um, uh, templates that you can find online that, that help you do this. But you basically say, you know, hi, here's my name. Um, I am submitting a request under the state public records act. Uh, you know, I want you lo local law enforcement agency to provide me with all of the instances where you captured my car license plate. And here's my license plate. And I want you to search your records between you know, you pick a start time, right? January 1st, 2020 or whatever, uh, until 
whatever, January 1st, 2023, whatever time frame you want. Um, and hopefully they'll give you back some records. So this is exactly what happened to me. So I filed this, I filed this records request to the Oakland Police Department uh, about myself, about my own car, and it came back with a bunch of like pictures of my license plate. They're like tight cropped images of just the plate um, and a list of, of GPS coordinates and dates and times. Um, and again, like that is, you know, I don't think that I don't think that the that the OPD, or at least I hope the OPD, has bigger fish to fry than worry about like what taco trucks I like to go to, um, you know. But it is it does kind of make you wonder. It's like, well, well, who's who's monitoring this? And and again, like I I don't think personally that like the the OPD is after me personally, but I do find it uh, interesting given that you know. Um, you know, Oakland is a very complicated city, as are many cities in this country. And I understand the argument that law enforcement often makes, whether it's in Oakland or anywhere else, saying like, hey, we need these tools to like go after bad guys. And like, I get that. Who's going to argue against going after bad guys? We all want to go after bad guys. But we also need to be mindful of government overreach. We need to be mindful of like how these tools are used in practice. Um, and I think that um, yeah, like you said, w one thing that, that any individual can do is to, you know, make them show their work. I mean, that's what habeas data means is, you know, show me the data, provide me the data. That's what it means. Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, it's a way to shine a light on, on again, not, not, not assuming nefarious intent on the part of any given police department, but just to, like, understand, like, what's actually happening in your own town, in your own county. Um, I also filed another records request because I was surprised when the Oakland Police Department gave me records on my own car. I decided to ask for all of the records that they had ever captured, all of the license plate records that they had captured. And to my shock, they provided it. Um, I mean, I'm glad that they did, but it was this, I wrote about this in a story for Ars Technica uh, years ago, but, um, but they provided me with a vast database going back a few years of showing like, you know, this car was captured at this location. And I was able to discern in some instances patterns of behavior, right? Because this is of course pre-pandemic, many more people were commuting, right? But like if you see a car parked between the hours of nine and five in a, you know, office type neighborhood, and then in the evening you see it in a residential type neighborhood, there's a good chance that that car like you can tie those two things together, right? That you can say, oh, this car belongs to this person. Um, you know, and one of, and I demonstrated this for a city council member uh, here in Oakland, directly in front of the Oakland City Hall, there are street parking spaces that are marked for the different uh, city council districts. So it'll say like district one reserve parking, district two reserve parking. And I went to the district one city council person, Dan Cobb, who's still on the city council, and I knew his plate because I saw his car right outside. And I punched up his, I, I, on, on our search tool that we built, uh, I punched up his, uh, you know, where his car was parked in his neighborhood. And I was like, do you live on this block? And he was like, yeah, I do. So, <laughs> so you know, that, that's, that's what that means. When, when you build a tool like this, that's what it means, um, is you can, learn, you can learn all kinds of things about somebody. And like you said, when you combine it with, with what you were talking about with the with the marketing behavior, how people interact online, you can develop a pretty detailed picture of somebody again without, you know, breaking any laws. <laughs> so, um, so yeah.
Well, that's uh, and that's stunning to me. I didn't realize uh, I must have missed that part where um, or maybe you didn't put it in here. I can't remember, but that they gave you everyone else's data as well. To me, that's like, I mean, all you need is someone's license plate and you could that kind of information is uh, should not be made public. I don't think you know what I mean. I mean, obviously, I don't I, I trust you, Suras. I, uh, well, that's kind. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we. it's interesting you say that. It's interesting you say that because at the time that we did the story for Ars Technica and you can link to it or people can find it. Um, but we went back and forth, my, my colleagues and I, about whether we should publish the entire database or not. And ultimately, we decided not to. We described it. Yeah. We, we showed what it could do. We built a tool such that like I could, because it, what it was was just essentially a massive spreadsheet. That's what it was. That's the format right. it was given to me in. But it wasn't, it was, we created a tool for ourselves where I could punch in a given plate and then it would plot on a map showing where and when that, you know, that plate was seen. Um, so we didn't, we didn't make that, that tool public. But I think there is a, an ongoing discussion around um, information like that, that, that comes to light through often through, you know, acts of journalism, whether myself or, or somebody else, um, you know, as to how much of that should, or, you know, can be made public. Yeah. I, and so for me, uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about like some practical solutions, then maybe broaden out to, to what you think are the right principles here. Um, it seems to me part of the, problem here is, and you know i'm relatively new to this side of the discussion but is the permanency of the records right like um the idea that like literally uh in some ways the government is almost pre-building cases against people right like uh <laughs> you know, like if you, if you if you do like um and th this idea that all this would be admissible in court or would it well, I mean, it, it depends, right? I mean, there's a, like, there's anything that we do. I mean, we live in a world where, where yes, there is a permanent record, again, whether it's physical. I mean, part of the question is like, so if we're talking specifically about license plate readers, right? There's a question of data retention. How long does the government get to keep the fact that my plate was seen at a place at a certain time if I'm not, if it's not connected to some criminal investigation? And and it's interesting that there's no set rule on this. Um, at the time that I was reporting, it may have changed, but at the time I was reporting on this here in Oakland, um, that retention was six months. So the, so the police could keep that okay. record for six months. Um, or sorry, they, there was no rule and then they reduced it to six months. And it, as far as I know, it hasn't changed since then. But if you go ask your local police department and then you ask, you know, three counties over, you might find there's a different answer. You might find that some, some departments take the policy as like, well, we'll keep it forever. And like on the off chance that it might be useful in three years or whatever, right? And I think like a lot of us can relate to that. Storage is cheap. Anybody who uses Gmail uses the archive function on a daily basis, right? Like, why don't you delete this email? Well, why should I? There's no reason to. Like it's, you know, storage data is small. Storage is nearly infinite or cheap, extremely cheap. Um, so why wouldn't you keep it? I think that's kind of the, the thinking. And then other you know, agencies take the policy of like, well, we're only going to keep it for a year or six months or three months or a week or you know, whatever. Um, and I think it, it's worthwhile to have a discussion amongst local leaders and amongst local uh, policymakers, police officers, um, journalists, activists, lawyers, people just like talk about like, okay, if you want to set it to forever, 
what does that mean? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and if you want to set it to an hour, what does that mean? Like, <laughs> you know, and there's, and, and, you know, um, maybe the answer in Oakland is different than the answer in Washington, DC or in Tampa, Florida or something. I don't know. But, um, I think it's worth having the conversation with, with those people about, um, where those limits should be. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it opens so many, uh, there, there's so many different ways that this branches off into each other. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, what, it, what do you see are the most salient, uh, principles for guiding these discussions? What, what do you think, uh, would help the most? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a there's sort of a theory that that is goes by um, something called privacy by design, um, meaning that when you build a tool, whether it's you know an online tool for consumers to use, or whether it's you know a tool that that a law enforcement agency might use, is to try to kind of minimize the the collection of the data and know specifically what you're collecting and why you're collecting it, who has access to it, for how long, for what reason. Um, here in Oakland, and this is sort of the, you know, spoiling the ending of my own book, but uh, one of the things that we do here in Oakland is we have something called a privacy advisory commission, which like a planning commission, like a parks commission, like any other kind of city commission, is sort of a sub-entity of the city and acts here in Oakland as an advisory body to the city uh, for the purposes of evaluating things that would impinge on privacy, things that relate typically to surveillance. Um, most often that's the police department saying, Hey, we want to buy, uh, this tool or that tool for these reasons, but they have to provide sort of an affirmative argument as to why they need it and come up with a policy as to how they'll use it and, and how they won't abuse it. Um, and then they have to come back year after year and, and say, okay, here's, here was the outcome of that. Um, which I think is good. And I think, you know, more cities and communities and states should have something like that if possible, where, um, because I think one of the reasons that people don't trust police in a lot of instances is they just don't know what the police have or why the police have what they have. Um, I think if there's a, if, and I've said this to Oakland police officers, I was like, you know, I think it'd be really cool if you guys had like an open house once a year and like let people see what a, a license plate looks like in real life and let them touch it and feel it and, you know, interact with it in some way and explain to people like what it is. Um, you know, we were talking, you mentioned drones earlier, like drones, I, I think you could apply this formula to almost any type of, of tool that the, that the police have. Again, put it in front of people, like explain it in a way that they can understand and have and put people at ease saying like, okay, yeah, we do have a drone. Yeah, we can fly it over everywhere in the city, including your house. Um, you know, but we're not going to do that because the government, the, because the, the police department has very clear policies about, right, we only deploy it for in these specific situations. And it has to be approved by the highest levels of the police department. And it has to be signed off. And, you know, unless it's part of an investigation, we delete all footage, all recordings after whatever, a day, a week, whatever it is. Um, I think that would put a lot of people at ease is just like being transparent, being straightforward with like, here are the tools that we have. Here's why we use them. Um, and, you know, I think that would, that would really help. Um, so I think, that, I think that the principles that people can have is to kind of ask questions. If, if this is a topic you're interested in, and if anyone who's watching or listening to this is 
doing so, presumably they are. Um, <laughs> I think a good way is to is to find out if you don't know already um, what your local law enforcement agency has in the way of those types of tools. Um, we were talking earlier about public records requests. That's a tool that is available to any person. Um, you can ask for not just you know license plate scans of your own car. You could ask for like, you know, uh, I want all the invoices and contracts that um, your city signed with, you know, companies that make license plate readers or drones or anything, right? Like you could ask for, and you could find out like how much is your police department spending on drones every year? I would bet it's more than you think. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe that doesn't bother you, right? Like maybe that's fine. Maybe, right. You see stuff in the news, like fairly regularly now, right? The police, some law, some police department will say, oh, we put up a drone. Some guy was fleeing a house and he stole a car and he did something bad. And, you know, and we caught him because of the drone. I'm like, okay, like that's fine. But I think people get a little bit more freaked out when it's like, oh, there was a political protest and the police were putting up drones and they were maybe using it to identify people engaged in lawful constitutionally protected behavior, not committing crimes, you know, just attending a political protest of whatever politics they have. Um, right. You know, I think people would be disturbed one way or the other. So, um, so yeah, I think just finding out what your local community has, how they use it, um, it you know, and if you may be, you may be surprised to find out uh, what you find out. Well, and you mentioned in here uh, Americans' basic distrust of government, but that hasn't stopped the American government from using these powers to help those in power, right? Like, I mean, we have... Yeah. Um, and so, you know, even as you mentioned that example, it's it's that misuse that's signed off by people who have a vested interest in its misuse, right? Uh, when, you when you talk about, like, drones identify, like, if you had someone in power... Uh, who the political protest was aimed at, and they could send out drones Certainly. to identify people, Certainly. right? Certainly. Um, I, and I'm thinking, I'm not saying that that has happened, um, but I mean, when we talk about things like uh, some of the the stuff that we've seen, like for instance, Nixon, you know, uh, even going back that far, but it's not like it was that long ago, right? Like we no. know this stuff happens. A absolutely, absolutely, and I think that's what our collective fear or concern is based on. It's based on real things. Um, it's based on recent history. You know, you, the abuses of the '70s that you're talking about, and it's based on, you know, this the the stories and the real history that has been communicated to us from, you know, many generations ago. Um, yeah. and, and that we still, that we still live with, right. The fact that we are, that we are governed by a document that's 250 years old, um, that we still continue to find relevancy in is kind of amazing. Um, and, you know, um, yeah. So I think, I think that, that these are issues that, you know, all of us collectively kind of grapple with and, and try to figure out. And, um, you know, I think if we wanted to live in a world where, um, there was no crime, I think we would live in a totalitarian society, um, right? Like that's, that's sort of the trade-off in a weird way, right? We sort of allow, we collectively allow there to be a certain level of crime in exchange for, you know, government entities not kicking down our door whenever they want, right? That's the deal that we have. And it's not perfect. Um, but that's the deal that we have. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, and yeah. And we yeah. try to set up rules and regulations to to inform uh, those boundaries. Um, so, 
Yeah, and I love that you brought up the Constitution because one of the things I, I did want to talk to you about, uh, you mentioned privacy by design, and I love that as a principle. I think that's, you know, just being intentional is important um, about these discussions. But where are we right now in terms of, if you, can you give a lay of the land from a legal perspective for the the, the current precedents and principles that, uh, you know, you, you've talked about um, things from, uh the the 200s being uh being used for uh not from 200 years ago not the 200s that would be different uh from the, uh <laughs> 200 years ago <laughs> uh uh being applied to this and then even stuff like um is it it's cats versus united states right like when it comes to surveillance uh can you give our audience kind of a, a lay of the land of uh the current legal principles and precedents uh and what or do you think are the next battlegrounds from a Supreme Court stand, uh, standpoint? Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so right. And this is right. So my book focuses on like the use uh, of, of technology and, and surveillance by the government. So a thing that a government entity, whether it's your police department or the you know, FBI or whatever, is doing to, you know, Americans. Um, right. So the Fourth Amendment, as I'm sure people know, right, protects, uh, again, the right to unreasonable search and seizure. Um, the key question is unreasonable, <laughs> right? The, the, the Constitution doesn't say the government can never search you. It, it says you, the government cannot do it unreasonably. So, so typically, the way we define what is or is not unreasonable is we have this thing that we call a search warrant or a seizure warrant, right? So it says, hey, you know, uh, judge, we, the Oakland Police Department, think that Saru Svarvar has stolen washing machines and we think that those washing machines are in his house. And so here's why we think that, because uh, we saw him unloading a bunch of washing machines off a truck and put them into his house. And so we want permission, judge, to go search his house. And the judge says, yep, that sounds great to me. Go ahead and go do that. Um, and then the police have permission. They have, you know, they can conduct a reasonable search of my house. Uh, the the warrant describes the things to be searched, the places to be searched and the things to be seized, right? It has to describe with particularity uh, where and what and why the police think that they're gonna find the things that they're looking for, right? So if they're looking for washing machines, they're not supposed to then also go open my dresser drawer, which could not contain a washing machine and find, you know, stacks of cash or whatever else that is in, you know, my dresser drawer or whatever, you know, like the, the, there are rules about, you know, how things are supposed to be searched and the manner in which they're supposed to be, to be done. But then it gets weird when we enter, and I describe some of these cases in my book, it gets weird when the government wants to use a tool to um, maybe, again, depending on your view, skirt the rules a little bit or or be aggressive in in prosecuting uh you know criminal suspects um so there's a case that i write about uh called kylo k-y-l-l-o uh, which involves a guy in oregon who the police believed um was growing marijuana in his house um and the way that they yes. eventually figured out that he was or the way that they confirmed their suspicions was they took a an infrared scanning device, they stood on the street outside of his house and they pointed it at his house to figure out what is the thermal 
reading what what energy is you know invisible infrared energy is being given off by the grow lamps in his house um that could be picked up by this by this device uh and they didn't have a warrant for that and the police argued that they didn't need a warrant because they were not in the house they were out on the street <laughs> and they had a device that could effectively peer through the wall of this guy's house and figure out whether he had something that was giving off massive amounts of infrared heat. Uh, and it turned out he was. Um, but ultimately, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You can't, you, if you're going to use yeah. a tool like this, um, you, particularly when you're invading, you know, peering through the walls, um, you can't, uh, you need a warrant to do this. And this is sort of the, um, you know, and one of the principles that they, that they uh, came back to um, is a is a a constitutional principle uh, or a Supreme Court precedent, I should say, um, that's known as the reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, so you mentioned this case called Katz versus United States, which is a really interesting story. Um, and reasonable expectation of privacy, I think, is one of these phrases, um, you know, like that. I think many of us have heard, but maybe we don't totally know what it means or where it came from or why we why it exists. <laughs> Um, you know, yeah. it's separate yeah, yeah, yeah. equal. It's like one of these like weird legalistic phrases. Um, so reasonable expectation of privacy means that it, it, it's a phrase that comes from uh, this case, Katz, uh, the Katz case, which involves a guy in Los Angeles in the 1960s who liked to gamble. And the way he would conduct his gambling would would be that he would walk down Sunset Boulevard um, and he would go to pay phones. Right. Imagine a you know big, tall Superman style payphone. Uh, and he would go into these payphones and he would call his bookie and he would place bets on college sports. And that's what he'd like to do. And he drew, he did this so much that he drew the attention of the LAPD and of the FBI. And eventually what they decided to do was to capture his, the sound of his making these phone calls, but they didn't wiretap the phone. They didn't like do a kind of a technological uh, trick to the phone itself. What they did was they placed microphones on top of the phone booths that he used, um, which is kind of amazing, actually. Like, and I'm imagining, like, the, I don't have any pictures of this, but what I imagine is like, right, okay, so you've got a phone booth that's like taller than a person. So it's pretty tall, right? It's probably like, I don't know, six and a half, seven feet tall, at least, maybe bigger. Um, and we're talking about 1960s technology. So I'm imagining these like gigantic reels of like tape, right? Like of, of actual... <laughs> like cellophane audio tape, right? These huge things that are mounted somehow on the top of the phone booth. And they had a team of agents who was watching him as he would walk from his, from his apartment to these phone booths that he liked to use. And they would send a guy ahead and climb up the phone booth and presumably hit record because they were only interested in this one guy. They weren't interested in recording everybody. <laughs> but that's just like, I just find that scene like so amazing that like a team of agents yes. is like sending somebody like they're probably like I imagine that they're in like this is like the 60s. So they're probably not in like Dick Tracy fedoras. But like, you know, I'm imagining like something like that. Like Anyway, yes. so, they, yeah. so they, they capture this guy making these calls. And the argument that his attorneys made uh, in his case that eventually, as you say, went to the Supreme Court was, hey, uh, the, you know, a person has a, quote, reasonable expectation of privacy in a phone booth like you would have in your home, like you would have in your uh, doctor's office, like you would have in a hotel room, like you would have in a taxi. Um, there are places that we all go to, that we all live in, 
that where we where our rights are sort of at their highest, where like there's it, the government has to clear a pretty high bar to get a warrant to to you know cross that line, and so this is where this principle where this principle comes from. But then the question is like, okay, we have a reasonable expectation of privacy in our home. Do we have it in public? The Supreme Court says no, you don't. Um, which is why we were talking about license plate readers earlier, right? The reason why license plate readers can even exist, legally speaking, in this country is because the Supreme Court said in 1982, the year I was born, before license plate readers even existed, that there is no reasonable expectation of privacy in public, right? And I don't think that idea is wrong in and of itself, I would argue, right? Like, I don't think when I walk outside of my yeah, house, yeah. if you're standing across the street, you're going to see me. Cool. That's fine. But like, you'll see yeah. that I'm wearing a blue shirt. Fantastic. But I don't think in 1982, any of the justices or very few of the justices, I would guess, could have imagined that we would, in a few decades, you know, enter a world where people's license plates are being captured at incredibly high speed, where people's faces are being captured by facial recognition cameras, where people's movements and sounds um, are being captured by, by drones and other types of technological tools. And, it's, and, and so I think that you know, when you're in public, most people don't expect that they're going to be monitored in that way. Um, and so, so that creates kind of an interesting scenario where like, where, you know, you, when you're in public, you know, the government can basically do anything because that is as the, as the Supreme court and the constitution have defined it currently, uh, mm -hmm. you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in public when you are out and about, you know, conceivably, uh, right. The, like if I'm walking around the street, the police can see, like, I'm not saying they, this actually happens, but like my reading of it is like, yeah, the police conceivably could put a drone over my head when I'm, when I'm, when I'm, you know, walking around, biking around out in, in public, in, in a public space. Uh, and I would have no, there's nothing that would stop them from doing that. Um, again, I hope the Oakland Police Department has better things to do than do that. <laughs> <laughs> but like legally, they could they could do that. Um, and and as we as these technologies get more and more sophisticated every year, um, get more and more um, you know capable uh, can can store vast vaster and vaster vaster is that even a word? More vast amounts of data um, and and you know adding incredible resolution with incredible detail. And again, when you combine, um, when you combine various things, people's online activity, people's facial features, um, you know, I, I imagine like in the not too distant future, right? We're ne in the last, I don't know, five years or so, there's been use of, of um, what's often called genetic um, geneal or uh, yeah, genetic genealogy, where using DNA samples from somebody who's, um, you know, abandoned a coffee cup on the side of the road, uh, they can use that to, to extract a DNA sample to show that, oh yeah, this person was the, you know, serial killer. We did this here in California. There's some, somebody called the Golden State Killer a couple of years ago was caught uh, after many decades um, because of this exact thing that, that they used, you know, genetic analysis on a discarded, uh, I think it was a coffee cup, um, right? But you could imagine a world if like, if we're all right, we're all shedding hair and skin cells, things that that, you know, 
would provide a definitive uh, record, right, of where I've been and when I, w when I was there, right? If right now a license plate reader just says, okay, this car that belongs to me, but maybe I wasn't driving it, maybe my wife was driving it or I loaned it to a friend or somebody, it's not necessarily me, but if my DNA was at a place I was pretty, pretty darn sure I was there. Yeah. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so like, you know, I feel like that whole question of like reasonable expectation or lack of reasonable expectation of privacy in public is different, right? Viewed through a 1960s lens to me than it is viewed through a 2020s, 2022, 2023 lens, um, you know, just given the level of sophistication of these technologies, which again, I think is what happened like through, throughout the history of, of, of my book, the 50 years that I'm, that I'm looking at um, from 67, 1967 to 2017, um, it's almost like a family tree of, of legal cases and they, and they sort of play off of, of one another and they, and they spring from one another. That's how the legal system works is based off of, off of precedent. But we don't have an inherent right to privacy in this country. We don't have an inherent, um, you know, we have certainly, you know, Fourth Amendment protections at the, at the federal level. But again, like, there are weird exceptions to that, right? We talked about the reasonable expectation of privacy. Another one that comes up a lot, and I talk about this, I think, a little bit in, in the book is, um, right, the border exception. There are exceptions to the Fourth Amendment, and the U.S. border is one of them. So if you, if you travel abroad and you come back into the United States, probably you've had you've had the experience of having your bag searched or maybe even your phone searched right and that gets into another whole weird set of questions is like right right so what happens you show up at you show up at san francisco airport and the border agent says okay uh we need to like search your phone if a, if the oakland police stop me on the street here and say we need to search your phone and i say no i'm fully within my right to do that um and there's not much they can do that they need right the supreme court has said that you need a warrant to search a phone subject to arrest, right? The, again, this is one of the cases written about in my book. At the border, it's a wholly different story, right? If they, if they say to me, hey, we need to search your phone, and I say no, they can take it from me. And there's not much I can do um, because the, the, the Supreme Court has said, yeah, there's a, there's a border exception to the Fourth Amendment. Um, you know, then there's a whole other question of like, okay, well, my phone's encrypted. Can the government force me to decrypt it? Can they force me to, to divulge the password to my phone? Can they force me to put, use my face print to unlock the phone? Can they make me put my thumb? I mean, I feel like nobody has like thumb things anymore on their phone that was like <laughs> four years old now, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, can, right. And yeah. then you, you go down this rabbit hole and it's a whole different situation. I've talked to different lawyers who say, right, like for this reason, this is why I don't, uh, I've heard people say like, this is why I don't use biometrics to unlock my devices is because, um, is because then we get into, the, we've been talking about the Fourth Amendment. Then there's the question of the Fifth Amendment, right? The the right to not self-incriminate, um, and the law distinguishes things between of what you are and what you know. You cannot be testified compelled to testify against yourself. You cannot be compelled to to divulge information that would potentially incriminate you. So that's like things you know. You cannot be You cannot be forced to give up a password. But you can be forced to provide a DNA sample. You can be forced to provide a uh, handwriting sample. You can be forced to provide a fingerprint, to provide a face print. So like, how, how often does this happen in the real world? Not that often, but it's, it creates a weird set of circumstances. Um, so all of that is to say is the law is changing. 
Um, and I think this is one of the realizations that I came to through the process of writing this book, which is that the law is always going to be behind, right? The, the technology is just moving too fast. It's changing too quickly. Yeah. Um, cities are trying to, and the criminal, right? Criminals know about drones. Criminals know about all this stuff. Criminals use Bitcoin, right? It's this kind of constant cat and mouse game um, uh, of, of various things that has happened for, for decades, if not centuries. Um, so I think if we're concerned about, if you know, we as Americans are concerned about the, the, the overreach, potential overreach uh, of these technologies, I think we have to be mindful of how they're used, of like what restrictions exist, um, and explain clearly to people, like, like I said, what they're for, who uses them, for how long, for what purpose. Um, and I think, you know, that would, I think, certainly put a lot of people's minds at ease, certainly mine, um, you know. So, absolutely. I and so I, I want to be uh, aware of your time. And uh, again, thank you for coming on the show. Sure. Uh, what is what would be one takeaway or one uh, practical thing that people could do with uh, what you've told us today? Like, what would you encourage uh, most people? Like that that next step for people listening to this? Yeah, I would say I would say you know, regardless of whether you live in a big city or a small town or something in between, I would say take five minutes of your time and search for, uh, you know, like I would literally just punch into Google, like the name of your town or your county and like privacy or privacy activist or privacy lawyer uh, or privacy journalist, something like that. L just try to figure out like, who are the other people who are interested in these issues like you're interested in? A lot of times, not always, but a lot of times that might be an organization like the ACLU um, here in San Francisco, we have another organization called the Electronic Frontier Foundation that deals with a lot of the intersections between law and privacy and technology. Um, EFF operates on a nationwide basis, but they are based here in, in the Bay Area. Um, there are lots of other kind of local versions of, of these types of organizations. Um, so I would say connect with like-minded people who maybe share your interests and, and, and values in that respect. Um, you may discover that they that some of those folks have already you know figured out that like your county sheriff has ten drones or whatever. Um, you might find that you know some you know nerdy journalist like me has <laughs> requested uh, you know lots of data about license plate readers or or whatever. Um, and if you don't find if you if you live in a place where you have not been able to find like-minded people that are interested in those things. Maybe you can be maybe you can be the first person. Maybe you can be the person who's filing the records request. Like I said, no special skill or permission or privilege or license or anything is required to file a records request. Um, you know, you can find lots of templates to to do that if if that's something that you want to do. Um, you know, sometimes it costs a little bit of money, but it's not typically too expensive. Um, but um, but yeah, I would say, you know, ask questions, be nice, <laughs> uh, yeah. assume, uh, you know, I try to assume good faith uh, uh, as much as possible. Um, you know, I'd like to believe that, that most law enforcement are, are using these technologies to try to do their jobs better. Um, but I, and I don't think that it's necessarily the job of the, you know, the cop on the street to be thinking about, you know, questions of, where the boundaries of the law are and worry about what this or that, you know, court precedent is. I'm sure they have lawyers that work for the police department who tell them what they can and can't do. Um, and, you know, I think it's up to all of us to figure out, you know, how we want our local governments, how we want our national government um, to 
to use those tools. And I think that that you know people might find that that there is you know a a uh, an audience of people that that maybe share these these concerns. Um, and I would encourage folks to to go you know plug in with those communities um, and uh, yeah take it from there. Uh, great and practical wrap up. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much.